If you know one thing about Edith Wilson, it's that in 1919, when Woodrow Wilson suffered a massive stroke, she took the reins of executive power and and did his job for him for months and lied about it, which is shocking on its face, but particularly shocking a hundred years ago when women couldn't wield that power legitimately for themselves. For her to be acting as the nation's executive for a really surprisingly long time is a historical disconnect that is a little bit hard to wrap your mind around. That was author Rebecca Boggs Roberts speaking about Edith Wilson, a little-known First Lady of the United States who wielded enormous power at a critical time in the nation's history. I'm Mark Updegrove. And I'm Mark Lawrence. And this is With the Bark Off. Rebecca Boggs Roberts is an award-winning educator and historian who has written extensively about women's history and especially the women's suffrage movement. Her books include The Suffrage Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World, and Suffragists in Washington, D.C., The 1913 Parade and the Fight for the Vote. And now Becca has published Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson, a richly detailed biography of a woman who's eluded careful study despite the fact that she played a vital role in one of the most consequential presidencies of the 20th century. Mark, it seems to me presidential biographies are a dime a dozen. They appear with such regularity on and seem always to make the bestseller list, but we know much less about first ladies. Um, And yet there has been some publishing about First Ladies in recent years that has consistently pointed out how important these figures are. And and not just in the late 20th century when, you know, we might think of First Ladies like Eleanor Roosevelt or Lady Bird Johnson or Jacqueline Kennedy, but also even back in the 19th and and early 20th centuries. You're absolutely right, Mark. And this, the, the, the First Lady that we're going to talk about today Edith Wilson is particularly fascinating. Woodrow Wilson, of course, comes into the presidency in 1913, and he's married to a woman named Ellen, uh, who dies shortly into his presidency. He becomes this sort of gay bachelor in Washington, and and uh, it begins squiring Edith Wilson, who <laughs> is a, a very strong, prominent woman in Washington, and ends up playing this incredibly important role in history. And so her story is particularly fascinating. And frankly, Mark, before I read this book, Uh a story I was not familiar with. I knew her because she took care of her husband when he was convalescing from a stroke and more or less uh, uh, held the duties of president. Not that the American people knew that, but we now know that. But uh, so this becomes a fascinating story on so many levels. It's true. And, you know, Woodrow Wilson has to be one of the most intensely analyzed, studied presidents in in all of American history. After all, he left such a profound imprint, especially on international affairs in the period following his, his, his presidency. But we, it seems to me, know very little about 
Woodrow's personal life. I mean, maybe it's there, you know, in in some of the biographies that dive into great depth, but it's certainly not what we know best about Woodrow Wilson. So looking at him through the lens of this, this intensely personal relationship with his first wife, but especially, of course, with Edith, promises to tell us something new about someone who we may think we know pretty well already, but we probably stand to learn some new things as well. And that's the other important thing about biographies, because as much as we may have known about Edith Wilson, Rebecca Boggs Roberts tells us to a large degree that we got it wrong. And that, that, that this first lady who has this outsized role uh, in, uh, in her husband's administration is largely hiding in plain sight. Rebecca Boggs-Roberts, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Rebecca, let's dive right in. Of course, we want to talk about a lot of um, dimensions of of this this life that you you chart in in, in this fantastic new uh, biography. But I, I want to start with what struck me as one of the most powerful claims you make at the very outset of your book. You say that Edith Wilson wielded the most political power of any first lady in history. Describe the, the peculiar circumstances that propelled Edith Wilson into such an important role. It is anomalous. I mean, if you know one thing about Edith Wilson, and it's possible you know nothing about her, plenty of people don't, but if you know one thing, it's that in 1919, when Witcher Wilson suffered a massive stroke, she took the reins of executive power and and did his job for him for months and lied about it, um, which is shocking on its face, mm. uh, but yeah. particularly shocking 100 years ago when women couldn't wield that power legitimately for themselves. Women had just... Um, we're just starting to be enfranchised around the country. The 19th Amendment hadn't been ratified yet. And so not only is it um, a sort of astonishing usurpation of power that, you know, no one elected Edith to anything, but <laughs> within her time and context, um, and she was anti-suffrage herself. So at a time when most women couldn't even exercise the vote for her to be acting as the nation's executive for a really surprisingly long time is a historical disconnect that is a little bit hard to wrap your mind around. So, so Becca, it's fair to say that Edith Wilson is not well known as an important figure in an American history. She's sort of an asterisk of sort, if you know her at all. Why have we missed what an important role she played and the very basic aspects of who she was? Well, I think part of it is that she wanted it that way. Uh, one of the really tricky parts about writing Edith Wilson's story is that she spent a lot of time covering her own tracks. And she threw up all this smoke and mirrors to um, characterize her own actions as simply being the very best Mrs. Woodrow Wilson she could be. <laughs> that she wasn't political, she claimed, with a straight face till the day she mm. died. Um and that all she was doing was protecting her husband and, you know, consequences to the nation had to take a back seat. So some of it is she wanted it that way. And and she outlived Witcher Wilson by 37 years. Mm. So she had quite a long time to manage the message after his death. I think also it it was kept quite secret at the time. And then as sort of the news 
trickled out and it became clear that she was wielding more power than she was willing to admit to, there were a lot of people who minimized that, who who characterized her as the puppet of more politically savvy men or, um, you know, said she was kind of this naive country mouse who was being manipulated. And that's not fair either. She was not those things. Uh, she was also not Lady Macbeth. She did not seize power for her own agenda. She wasn't out there, you know, saying, now's my chance to radicalize the agenda of the Democratic Party. She really didn't do much differently than he would have done. But she was not a puppet. Um, there was not some master pulling the strings behind the scenes. And so I think between her own obfuscation um, – you know, the people who write history with a capital H, especially 100 years ago, tended to be men who minimized her role. And also this this disconnect, this idea that it's sort of hard to understand how a first lady could have gotten away with it. Mm. Um, you know, where was the vice president? Where was the cabinet? Where was the press? All very valid questions to ask. So I understand, I understand why the men would would contrive a different story here. Uh, it, 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 it's very sexist in its, in its way. Why would she minimize her own impact? Even, you know, 37 years, 37 years later, uh, Becca, why would she continue to pursue this narrative that she was just the dutiful wife of Woodrow Wilson? Isn't that fascinating? I actually found that sort of the most interesting part of trying to tell her mm. story. Um, you know, she wrote a whole memoir to minimize her role in history. Who does right. that? Like, no right, man right. ever. Um, but <laughs> I think some of it was uh, rationalization, right? She was trying to come up with a reason people would forgive her for. Um, but also, you know, she was very much raised in that Victorian era Southern ideal of the ideal woman who was submissive and pious and domestic. And that, you know, cult of true womanhood message that was being put out by all the ladies' magazines and by her own mother and grandmother. And even though she was by inclination quite fierce and independent and opinionated, she was taught from a very young age that she had to cloak all of that in this hyper-feminine, everything I was doing was in the service for a man, hmm. guys. Hmm. And I don't want to spend a lot of time psycho psychoanalyzing someone 150 <laughs> years after their death, but I really do think that that fundamental contradiction of someone who knew her own mind and was, was quite opinionated and strong, but was being told that she had to pretty it up in this, you know, ideal womanhood cloak. Um, that was her story over and over and over again. Everything she did in her life, and she was quite impressive, she kind of pretended she didn't. Mm -hmm. And Becca, given the, the efforts that Edith made to sort of cover her tracks and, and distort her own story, talk a little bit about some of the challenges you faced as a biographer simply to uncover what, what you think was, is, a, is a, you know, a fair account of her life. Yeah, so she did write a memoir. She was actually the first First Lady to write a memoir. She wrote it in 1939, or it was published in 1939, so about 15 years after Wilson's death, but when she still had quite a long life ahead of her. And she wrote it in a fury, <laughs> because I think everyone in that administration wrote a memoir, I mean, literally. Um, and when they started coming out after Wilson died in 1924, she was incensed. She felt that a lot of them got the story wrong. And so 
she definitely had an axe to grind with that memoir. And it is delightful. It's frank. It's funny. It's incredibly uh, chatty and very accessible, even, you know, um, this much later. It is also at points provably untrue. And Hmm. so you have to take her as an unreliable narrator of her own story. Hmm. And where there were other sources, you know, once she became first lady, there were plenty of other sources. But no one was paying any attention to Edith Bowling Galt before 1915. And so often she was the only source. And so um, because I knew she was untrustworthy, all I could do, you know, I couldn't verify, for instance, that one of the grandmothers who helped raise her was terrifying. She sure sounded it. She kept the skin of a dead dog on the back of her rocking chair and she was gothic in the extreme. But I, you know, I, I only had Edith's word for what she was like, but what I could do was kind of understand what reconstruction era Virginia was like and build a context around her childhood. Same thing when she was 18 and she moved to Washington and she sort of reinvented herself as this young, stylish, sophisticated woman about town. Um, you know, she was living with her older sister. Uh, she was dating Norman Galt. There weren't a lot of other direct first-person narratives about that, about her, but I could understand what Gilded Age Washington was like. Um, and so that was... Actually, Washington kind of became kind of a minor character in this story because she grew up as the city did in a lot of ways. You, you draw out her experience in Washington. And this is a woman who's to some degree pushing against societal expectations by driving a car and taking (laughs) an active interest in the work of her first husband who uh, owned a well-known jewelry business in in Washington, albeit not as lucrative as when she would take it over. Are we right in thinking of Edith as somewhat of an iconoclast? I think so. She... Again, because of that sort of innate fierceness and reliance on her own opinions, she, even if she didn't really know what she was doing in various situations, she sort of trusted her own instincts to figure it out. And so, yes, the, you know, she was the first woman in Washington to get a driver's license. Um, <laughs> when her husband died, she inherited the jewelry store. Um, so she became a business owner in 1908. That was uh, incredibly unusual for a woman. And had his father been alive or had his brother not been an invalid, you know, she could have been challenged for that. Um, but she decided not to sell it. She continued to run it herself. And she had managers. She wasn't, you know, behind the counter every day. But she was very much involved in the management of the store. And she didn't go to college. She didn't have a particularly formal education, but she trusted her own ability to make that work. And she did. She was right to trust her own ability to make it work. And so um, she was enough of an iconoclast, especially with the car, that she was sort of known about town. There are other memoirs from the time period, especially other sort of society hostesses, people like Alice Roosevelt Longworth and Ellen Maurice Slayton, who comment on Mrs. Galt tooling around town in her little electric car. She was sort of known, um, top speed, 13 miles an hour. That was, <laughs> that was one of those research holes I fell deeply down, the history of electric cars in America. You describe her uh, on one occasion as an anti-romantic, interesting choice of words there, I, a, a sort of pragmatist above all. Um, but 
Elaborate on that point a little bit. Uh, what were the limits on her pragmatism? Could she be romantic? What, what else would we want to know about her personality? So the reason I say that is because her love letters between mm. Edith and Woodrow exist. And yeah. let me tell you, his letters are <laughs> over the top. I mean, <laughs> who knew nerdy little Woodrow Wilson had it in him? But it, they are fervent. <laughs> Um, yeah. And and from the very beginning, Fervent, he just lays it all out there from the second he meets her. And she is not. And it's, you know, I've, I've read some characterizations of her in other biographies that say that she was um, playing hard to get or doing a Southern, you know, no means yes thing. And that's just not fair. If you read those letters, she kept him at arm's length um, and not only continually changed the subject, when he went on and on about her beautiful form and how he wanted to kiss her eyelids. But she, the subject she kept turning to was politics. And so, you know, he proposed to her for the first time five weeks after they met, and she turned him down. She didn't feel like they knew each other well enough. And the very next day, so after he has poured his heart out to her, he writes her a letter about how his heart breathes for her and on and on. And she writes him a letter back where she says... You know, we were having a really interesting conversation last night that I'd like to return to. And you would expect her to say, you asked me to marry you. No. <laughs> she says, you mentioned that William Jennings Bryan might resign as Secretary of State. And I'd really like to talk more about that. Who do you think is going to replace him? And maybe you should consider me to replace him. Which is wow. astonishing to me, right? She, she claimed she wasn't political. She had not been particularly involved in federal Washington, even as a local. And yet she's getting into the nitty gritty of cabinet appointments and she kept doing it. You know, he'd, he'd write this, you know, ardent poetic letter and she'd write back, you know, your last letter to the Germans about the Lusitania was not your best work. <laughs> and so it, it was, um, he finally figured it out that that was the way to her heart. And he, uh, started flattering her with, um, uh, trusting her opinion and asking her advice on things, but it wasn't patronizing. I mean, by the time he he tweaked to the fact that she, that's what she wanted to talk about, he really did trust her judgment, and he really did um, count her as sort of first among his closest advisors. and And I think that must have been awfully heady for her. You know, mm. she she was very beautiful. She was probably told she was beautiful every day of her life. And I'm not sure how many people told her she was smart. And mm -hmm. there was the president of the United States, a famous intellectual, telling her she was smart and that he trusted her judgment above all others. Um, and so uh, that was the key to romancing Edith, um, uh, much more so than, than the poetic uh, language that he started with. But also I think that she... Um, she was very hesitant to marry him. I don't, I don't know whether it was genuinely about him. I think she did truly come to love him. But she had this pretty great life as an independent widow. You know, she had her own money. She had control of her own money. Um, she could travel all the time. She didn't need a chaperone. She didn't have children. And um, that was a lot to give up to marry anybody. But certainly add the level of privacy she was giving up um, to become first lady she she really did hesitate. And, and eventually, when she did agree to marry him, she first said she'd marry him if he lost re-election in 1916. Uh, <laughs> she said, you know, I, I don't want people to think I want the office, not the man. 
Hmm. But is it is it fair to say, given her relatively tepid responses to his fervent love letters, Becca, that that this love, this romantic love, was requited on her end? I think eventually, yes. Um, I think she just wanted to make sure she was all in before she agreed. Um, and, you know, her first marriage had not been romantic. I, th- I think Norman Galt was um, in love with her, but she dismisses him in about a page and a half in her memoir. And it's very sort of, you know, Norman was security. Norman let me stay in Washington. Uh, Norman was nice to my family. Bye-bye, Norman. Um, and so I, at one point she writes Wilson a letter where she says she doesn't think she's capable of love because she had had this marriage that was very... Um, Friendly, but not romantic. And ultimately, she did start returning his affections. And her later letters are are quite romantic. And um, in her memoir, again, because she justifies her actions in 1919 as being in his service, uh, she absolutely talks about him as being, you know, the best man in the world and that there's no higher calling than to serve him and save him. Becky, you said a few minutes ago that Edith emerged as Woodrow's closest advisor, um, even before the stroke in, in 1919. Tell us a little bit about the specific areas, the specific issues where she you know, had, a, had a, an important influence in uh, Woodrow Wilson's administration. You know, he was not someone who took a lot of advice. He didn't have a big um, army of advisors. He always just had a few close confidants. His his first wife, Ellen, had been one of his closest confidants, and he was very much in the habit of sort of bringing his troubles home, as, as we all are. You know, how many times at the end of a day do you sit down with your spouse and say, wow, I really had a moment today. I wonder what you think of this. So I, th- I think being in his confidence was not surprising. I think where um, people underestimate Edith was how much she had to say about the specifics of policy and especially about who to trust. She was very, um, I think, jealous of his um, uh, trust in her. And so she started to kind of undermine some of his other confidants, uh, including Joe Tumulty, who was his chief of staff, well, title was secretary, but functioned as his chief of staff. Um, Wilson stuck by Tumulty, but Edith very much undermined Edward House, Colonel House, to the point where he and and Wilson really broke in Paris um, over the peace negotiations after World War I and really were kind of never in touch again. And she had... um, she was constantly pushing him to be more forceful in his language, which is interesting. He equivocated sometimes, and because his background was academic, he often um, wrote things in a um, you know with six dependent clauses and a lot of passive <laughs> verbs. And she was regularly pushing him to uh, be more unequivocal. Um, but I also I don't know that she had you know a policy agenda that she was pushing contrary to his. Interestingly, one of the one of the ways that I got involved in Edith's story is I'd written a book about the suffrage movement, and um, I was giving a lot of talks about suffrage, and um, almost inevitably, whenever I gave a talk, someone would ask me if Wilson had ultimately, you know, after dragging his feet on suffrage, finally decided to support the 19th Amendment because she had told him to, 
which is mm-hmm. absolutely not true. But that narrative is out there that she had kind of whispered in his ear and brought him around on the 19th Amendment. And not only did she not on the 19th Amendment, I don't think she played that role on any specific policy issue. I don't think she was there saying, you know, you really should consider a different path. She set a number of precedents as first lady. We'll talk about one major one in a moment. But uh, talk about where she falls in the importance of uh, first ladies in history, Becca. Where does where where do you put her in the evolution of the role of first lady? Well, let's stipulate that it's a bananas role, right? It's you you get no training, you get no job description. Uh, you can't be fired. You have the eyes of the nation on you. And in some ways, you're expected to sort of reflect ideal American womanhood, but who knows what that is. And uh, at certain times of history, certainly the late teens, early 20s, the notion of what ideal womanhood is changing in real time. And so you can work on the precedence of the people who came before you, but you've got to reflect your own period as well. Mm. And I think that every first lady faces this challenging binary where if you, you know, restrict yourself to white house Christmas decorations and ceremonial things, um, you know, you can face accusations of it being this sexist throwback that is, um, you know, the waste of a brilliant woman. But if you insist on a place at the table, you, um, open yourself up to criticism that no one elected you and you're undemocratic um, and you can't be fired. So Edith fell firmly on the, uh, you know, ceremonial wifely side of this. She didn't champion any causes. She did not give any interviews. um, And she brought the White House into uh, a much more social place than it had been when Ellen Wilson was first lady. Ellen Wilson was was shy and awkward and and the hostess side of it was really not her natural habitat. But she might have been sort of forgotten as this ornamental first lady, except that, first of all, she became a wartime first lady uh, because by April of 1917, the U.S. is involved in World War I. And that's its own weird thing, right? Um, and it turned out she was very good at that collective example side of the role. Um, she did all of the food rationing and she had sheep grazing the White House lawn to save, you know, uh, landscaping talent. Uh, she volunteered at the Red Cross. She sewed pajamas and pillowcases in the White House. Um, and so uh, she turned out to be a really good wartime first lady. And then... Um, when Wilson insisted on going to Paris in person to negotiate the peace, she went with him. And no first lady had ever gone abroad while first lady before. Barely any president had gone abroad. Mm. And so there she is, right there next to him, in the middle of the largest news story anywhere in the world. So she's on the front page of every paper and staying at Buckingham Palace and on the stage during all the ceremonies and you know, visiting the graveyards and the hospitals. And so suddenly the role of first lady is elevated on an international stage simply by her showing up um, in a way that no first lady had done before. And so it's kind of hard to figure out where she is in the Pantheon because she was hardly an activist like um, Eleanor Roosevelt or even Ellen Wilson had championed cleaning up um, some of the slums of Washington. Uh, and, And yet she set all of these precedents 
simply because of the times that she lived in. And then in 1919, obviously, when she actually acted as the executive, she ultimately, um, you know, became closer to being president than any first lady has, even though she pretended she didn't. Becca, it seems to me the heart of your book is the last few chapters where you discuss Edith's role after Wilson suffered that debilitating stroke. Um, it, it was in the next 15 months or so that Edith wielded this extraordinary power that leads you to describe her as the most powerful woman in the nation. I, I, tell us a bit more about how she wielded influence during those many, many months between uh, Woodrow's stroke and the end of his administration and how she was able to pull this off. It's astonishing that she was able to pull it off in retrospect. Um, so when they came back from Paris in the spring of um, 1919, uh, Wilson embarked on this train tour to try to sell the League of Nations to the American people. It was a terrible idea. He was already pretty sick um, and going on, a you know, cramming yourself into a hot train car and going thousands of miles and shaking hundreds of hands is not a way to get better. Um and so he, he initially collapsed on that train tour, and um, the train went speeding back to Washington. The tour was canceled, and a week later, he suffered a massive stroke. And, and he was a very, very sick man. He, at least for the first week or so, his life really did hang in the balance. Even once he was out of mortal danger, he, his whole left side was paralyzed, um, he, his speech was slurred. He found it sort of hard to concentrate and follow a conversation. He slept a lot. And at the time, the treatment for stroke was to be kept very quiet and to not face bad news and to not face any stress. Well, what does a president do all day? <laughs> he faces stress. He faces right. bad news. He uses his brain. And so the doctors, in Edith's telling, the doctors were telling her he can't do any of those things because it will kill him. But meanwhile, he can't resign because the only thing he's living for is to see the League of Nations realized. And so if he steps down, his whole motivation for getting better will be taken away. So he can't be president, but he can't resign. So from her point of view, the only path left to her was to do his job for him until he was better enough to do it himself. Now, there were some other options on the table. We do have a vice president. Um, <laughs> I will say the 25th Amendment didn't exist, and so the uh, succession plan was a little murkier than it is now. But she felt that that was the only way to keep him in the best possible uh, situation for improving. And so what she mainly did was decide who got to see him and what issues came to him. And she described herself as a steward. Um, she forbade almost anyone from coming to the White House. People, if they needed to have something addressed by the president, they would put it in writing, addressed directly to her. And she would then either take it to him or pretend she had taken it to him and deliver an answer in writing. That was true of diplomats, the cabinet, the Congress. Everybody just issued things in writing for months. She also decided, um, she drafted public statements, um, a lot of laws went into effect because the 10-day deadline without a signature passed. Um, she, at one point, several cabinet members started to resign. She decided who replaced them. Um, and she kept up this stone wall with the cooperation of Dr. Carrie Grayson and Joe Tumulty, the chief of staff, for an astonishingly long time. 
I think, you know, she lied to the public, she lied to the press, she lied to the Congress, to the cabinet. The, the most impactful lies she told, ultimately, were the ones she told to Wilson himself. Hmm. She never told him how sick he was. And she never told him any bad news. So he didn't know the country had turned against his agenda. So even if, again, I'm not sure she she made any decisions that were different from what he would have done. She knew his mind quite well. But even if she were consulting him on everything, his judgment was clouded because he was in an echo chamber. And so even if she was taking every single decision to him, and it's obvious she wasn't, he no longer had any perspective on how to make those decisions because he had no idea that the nation had moved on. When Warren Harding was elected in a landslide in 1920, Woodrow Wilson was probably the only American who was surprised. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everyone else knew that Harding's message of a return to normalcy was resonating with the voters. And Wilson didn't because Edith didn't tell him. So so Edith deceives Congress and the American public by withholding accurate information about Wilson's condition. To what extent are you and should we be critical of Edith for this mendacity and arguably unconstitutional usurpation of power? I mean, I'm incredibly critical of her for it. I I get it. I mean, you know, when I understand I'd set out to understand her and her motives and who she was and why she would take a step like that. And I do understand it. And it is 100% in keeping with the way she lived her life before 1919. If you're surprised by what she did, you weren't paying attention. But that doesn't mean I admire it. Um, You know, she was unelected and she had no business keeping that secret from the American public for as long as she did. Um, and I, I think I would have enjoyed Edith's company. I think she was smart and funny and she put everybody at ease. But ultimately, I do not admire her. I do think the decisions she made in that time were un-American and anti-democratic. Becca, when she died in uh, 1961, she lived for a long time, obviously, after Woodrow's death in 1924. Um, When she died, some of her obituaries claim that essentially she had become president of the United States for a time. Is is that going too far in your judgment? Or is that an accurate uh, way to sum it all up? I I have to put that word acting in there. I do think Mm -hmm. she acted as the executive to the degree that anybody was in the months following Wilson's stroke in October of 1919. So acting president? Yeah, I, I would go that far. I will not call her the first woman president. We will have a duly elected woman president in this country, and I don't want to take anything away from that woman's achievement. Um, I look forward to it. But uh, was she acting president for a time? Yes, she was. What What is your take, Becca, on the Wilson administration? What is the legacy of the Woodrow Wilson presidency? So this is one of the interesting things I discovered in researching Edith's post-Wilson life. So he died in 1924. She, as you mentioned, lived till 1961. We are, as a nation, revising the reputation of Woodrow Wilson a lot right now, Uh, remembering that he resegregated the civil service, remembering that he screened Birth of a Nation at the White House. Um, 
And, you know, I, I went to Princeton. I lived in Wilson College my freshman and sophomore years. That is no longer Wilson College. I lived down the street from Wilson High School in Washington, D.C. It is no longer Wilson High School. What is interesting to me is that the legacy we are revising was to a huge extent Edith's creation. She set herself out in those years after his death to bolster this myth of the visionary of global peace. Um, And she showed up at everything that honored Wilson to make sure that that narrative was carried through. So was he a visionary of global peace? I mean, I think in a lot of ways you have to give him credit for at least being able to see a notion of an international cooperative that would not ensure global security, but at least go some ways towards uh, minimizing, uh, you know, imperialism or or bellicosity. He did not achieve his goal. The League of Nations, uh, you know, went on ahead without the participation of the United States. And there are a lot of people who have criticized him for letting the French and English be too punitive in the Treaty of Versailles and and ultimately leading to World War II. Um, I think his legacy is about resegregating the civil service um, and and that the impact on the federal workforce were were large and um, measurable even today. So hard to know. I mean, I think that um, I, I don't want to impose contemporary standards on a historical figure. I think that presentism is sort of bad history, but even within his own time, which Wilson went backwards. And so um, I think revising his legacy and rethinking him as a visionary is valid. And I'm glad people are doing it. And I'm not just saying that because he was anti-suffrage. Um, although I have to say anyone who studies the suffrage movement does not come away with a lot of nice things to say about Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> Becca, let me ask you a, a slightly different question from the one you were just addressing. As, as we go through this process of reappraising Woodrow Wilson, is there anything that you learned about Wilson that surprised you or maybe might change the way we think about Woodrow, um, uh, seeing him through the eyes of, of Edith or see, you know, seeing him alongside this, this important woman in his life? You know, I'm so glad you asked that question because – those letters, I you know, I poke fun at him with the kiss your eyelid stuff, but they really mm-hmm. do humanize him. And he, it was hard to see Woodrow Wilson's humanity sometimes, in part because he liked it that way. He cultivated that image of, um, you know, morally superior intellectual. Um, and he enjoyed being seen as someone who was almost bloodless. Uh, and boy, was he not. Uh, And that's why primary sources are so important, because they're not curated for the public. He was only writing to her, and he didn't expect me to be reading his mail 100 years later. And so you see this very human side of who he was when he let his guard down. And he was so smitten with her and so... Uh, sincere. He was, it's, he's still humorless, but he's so sincere in his affection that you really do come away feeling like he's a human being. And I, 
I found it hard to see Woodrow Wilson as a human being before that. And it's why I think personal letters and, and writing history from a woman's point of view can be so valuable because um, often these men who were so interested in curating their own reputation and so protective of how people thought of them and were so self-conscious of making history, you know, so much of what they left behind was, you know, designed to be read. Um, and the stuff they wrote to the women in their lives, less so. Uh, and so I, I'm delighted those letters exist um, for both sides. I mean, I think it, it humanized both of them. So that's, we talked about Woodrow Wilson's legacy, but you write in your book that Edith was Lady Macbeth to some observers, a cheap floozy to others, and the ideal of the true devoted womanhood to an archaic few. Speaking very broadly, Becca, what is your sense of how we should understand Edith Wilson and her place in American history? I think she's a little bit of all of those. She's a complex, real, three-dimensional human being, as are we all. And that's why this biography was so much fun to write. I think that sort of sinner, saint, you know, hero, villain binary, it's, first of all, it's just sort of boring, but it's also not great history, right? No one really is all heroic or all villainous. And so understanding that she was smart and fierce and independent and, trailblazing in a lot of ways, and at the same time, petty and grudge-holding and fickle with the truth, uh, that doesn't change the fact that she made history to understand that she was a complex, three-dimensional human. Um, and I think it's actually liberating to understand that historical figures were real people and not, you know, some once-in-a-generation genius. Uh, and that's who she was. She was all of those things all at once. The book is Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. And our guest is Rebecca Boggs Roberts. Becca, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always, to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.